let's see. Happy Internet. birthday, Ron, another year older. Beautiful. Happy, happy, happy birthday, happy birthday. Bridget, are you ready? You ready, Live right Studio now. audience? Right on the yeah. yeah. Maybe I yeah, should make you a nice Kugel, and we could have All a right. Nice Some Richard Simmons to start off episode five, season two of Deeks and Docs. I am your host, Trey Calmley, sitting alongside, oh, the man who does everything, the man who does it all, Thomas Espy, wears so many hats, including a Kangle hat. Again. Again since he brought it up last time. I mean, we it's a very special episode this week on Deeks and Docs. Uh, we don't have any current students, um, but we have a pretty notable alum and a faculty member, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. And as always, I just ask that you share something that, you know, is, is more than just your name and where you're from, something that's kind of exciting. Um, for example, my name's Trey. I like the Minnesota Vikings, something like that. Um, as you introduced, yeah, I guess you're not a Minnesota Vikings fan. No, but oh. I will defer to my um, <laughs> elder. Dare I say? No, Kara, you're you're a director. Or you tell could us. introduce each other. That could be yeah, fun. Yeah, Kara, tell us things. You're in charge. No, I'm not in charge. <laughs> I don't want to be in charge. <laughs> no one's really. In I can charge say here. I am not a Minnesota Vikings. Fan. Okay, that, that's <laughs> not what this needed to be. Despite having family in Minnesota. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but it's nothing to do with my dislike of my family in Minnesota. I do like them. I just don't like the Vikings. Okay. So. Well, yes, we did not need to turn this into a <laughs> let's smash the worst franchise in sports. But yes, okay. Kara Pilsen. I also am not a fan. Okay, <laughs> all right. Studio audience, we got any Vikings fans out there? Never heard of them. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right, we have Kara Pilsen on the show and... Diane Hodson. Diane Hodson, MFA... Is it, you, you're not a candidate anymore, you're a graduate. Yes. MFA graduate from 2015. And, and Kara, you can back me up on this. I, I would say one of Wake Forest's best graduates has had quite a bit of success both while here and and outside of here yes i would agree i think diane um, both in the program and out of the program is somebody who has made um i I would say this diane creates her own opportunities uh, through hard work so i think um you know of students who've come through the program she took advantage of every opportunity there was, um, and certainly I think that has stood her uh, well in her career path since then. Gotta hustle. Uh, you gotta hustle. <laughs> gotta hustle. Um, you know, and I, I do think it's worth noting Diane is a, a winner of the River Run Pitch Competition mm-hmm. uh, with her film Unmappable. She was a winner of the New Orleans um, Pitch Perfect competition. I believe mm-hmm. that's the name of it. It's now I think Ridge. so. Um, but most admirably is Diane's second place win. Mm. Do you remember that? Oh, that was terrifying. Yes. What, what is the second place win? It made no sense. I competed a bunch against a bunch of neuroscientists. Oh my gosh. <laughs> made no sense. I had to have like one slide. For, for the what? The three minute graduate thesis pitch. Uh. Very few are willing to take on the challenge and Diane not only took on the challenge, but placed second. Next to a guy that wanted to create like lithium batteries that last forever. Yeah, right. And then it was like me. Yeah. And a sex offender. Well, like it made no <laughs> sense. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, 
It was not quite in my peer group. But, sure. Uh, yeah. We, she, that, that's kind of shocking, though, that a guy who just wanted to make batteries that last forever would win. I would think. With no, these were people who were saving lives. Well, right. That's uh, that's what I would and, think. And it would be something like that. Yeah, I should not have been second. <laughs> <laughs> I think but your ability to share your story yeah. and do so in a way that connected with a bunch of neuroscientists yes, in the room. Yes, if you can do that. Judges, I think that says a lot about your pitching prowess. <laughs> Possibly. Um, or they were really tired of listening <laughs> to science. They just wanted something else. Uh, well, thank you both for being on the show. Um, typically, oh, I should also mention, we do have a studio audience here today. Uh, Bridget Fitzgerald et al. Um, <laughs> are, are here listening to the podcast, and, and we may check in with them a little bit later. Uh, but thanks again, everyone, for being here. Typically on the show, we ask our guests to bring us food, but because this is such a special occasion... Well, yes, Kara, you actually did bring us There's food. There's Hershey's chocolate, right? You brought there. us Hershey's chocolate. So even when we didn't ask you to, you did bring food. Mm-hmm. I hope you're listening, Stan. Everybody brings us food. But we also brought you food. We brought... What are these, Thomas? These are... Pumpkin cookies. Pumpkin cookies from, from your mom. Yeah. She <gasps> made me a few dozen, so, so I brought a few in for you. They are... They are Delectable, as I said. Do we um, have to like achieve a certain, you know? <laughs> you, you just have to make it through. Point within the pond. Make it through in order to get the pumpkin cookie, I mean, or you know, like midway through, can we get a pumpkin cookie? We'll see how it goes, Kara. Okay, I'm not going to make any promises. I can't. I think you can back just up. Take one when you want it. Thank you, Thomas. You're welcome. United Front, there. Again, thank you guys so much for being on the show. Um, we we have a lot to talk to, um, Diane. You you are kind of the featured guest and. Kara will probably chime in and, you know, ask some questions as well. But um, I, I kind of just want to get some basic background on you. So you graduated from Wake Forest 2015. You had an incredible thesis film that is still taught in this program today. Um, we, we've seen your grant writing. We, I think you are the goal that a lot of us aspire to as far as getting grants and, and receiving pitch money or whatever it may be. Um, but what have you been t- up to since graduation? Um, since graduation? I can't believe it was three years ago. Mm-hmm. But a lot of things have happened. Um, one of the things is that uh, my thesis partner and I are still working together. Um, we are nearing the end of production on our first feature documentary together. Um, we also have some other short films we've been doing, and they're out in the world. And so that still keeps going. Do you want to plug any of those films? No, just okay. stuff like that have been commissioned for folks. But it's like, you know, keep going, which is really nice. Get some money. So um, our, I think our big accomplishment with this film is we haven't spent any of our own money. That is I think that's a huge amount. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of grant writing, um, so three years in, uh, we are still in, in the positive, which is really nice. And hopefully we'll be done next year, which would be really exciting. Um, so we've been working on that, and then I teach. I was a teacher before I came into the program for almost 10 years, and I continue to teach now. So I teach all different ages and all different environments. Um, from I've taught high school programs. My oldest student's 80. It's really fun to teach an 80-year-old premiere. Um, there's a lot of things in between that happen. Teach a lot of college classes. Um, so I really love to teach. And then I make podcasts, which I fell into, as we're talking about today. When I was in college, I had a radio show. 
It was called Get Your Jig On. Ooh. I know. I did not know. How did I miss that? It was Celtic music, Cara. Oh. <laughs> it was amazing, and it was, like, the funnest thing I've ever done. So um, I really loved it, and I ended up out in the world after graduate school working on film stuff, freelancing, and I came on to a project that was a film at the time, which um, ultimately ended up into the podcast form of Missing Richard Simmons. Um, and then I just got sucked in and haven't left. So that gets to be a piece of what I do. Uh, and we're going to come back to Missing Richard Simmons, but uh, I am curious. Get your jig on. This, this was just a college show that you had pitched and, and got on? It was. I was at NYU as an undergrad. So it was on my like Irish and Scottish aunts would call in, and they were like my main <laughs> callers. It was a real big popular show in the uh, familial fold. But otherwise, yeah, it was just so much fun. I bring in like local Celtic guests that would come into town. I was part of the Washington Square Harp and Shamrock Orchestra, what? and I was a tin whistler. You what? know, amazing skills I have over here. What, so, what, what is what is a tin whistler? Is is you a tin play whistle the tin like, whistle? Is that just like what I think it is? Just a whistle? It's, oh, I mean, better than that. <laughs> okay. But yes, no, it is. It is. It looks like a penny whistle, but it's like step above. Wow. So yeah, it was all very fancy. Gee. Somehow I missed that, and if I had known, I would have brought a tin whistle for you to play. Yes, we'll have to put you to the test later. Stay tuned for that. It was so much fun. I'm not though. sure which one of us will be doing the jig, but it was fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the jig. Yeah. I have no problems doing yeah. a jig. Um, Yes, and now, so let's let's talk a little bit about Missing Richard Simmons. You, you've been incredibly successful as a filmmaker and, and podcasting. Like you said, you just kind of fell into it. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the genesis of the idea and kind of how you became involved with Missing Richard Simmons. So Dan Tabersky, um, he really loves um, unironically Richard Simmons, like thinks Richard is amazing and awesome and inspiring and really wanted to do a film about him. And so specifically wanted to make essentially a concert film um, of Slimmons, which is like the workout studio. So he really, really wanted to make the equivalent of a concert film of that. And got to know Richard over a number of years, went and worked out at Slimmons, um, made friends with all the Slimmons folk, um, went out to dinner with Richard and companions, and it would be like, Richard, do you want to do this? He'd be like, oh, yeah, maybe, yes, no, I don't know. Exactly what you would imagine, Richard. So, so he knew that like he wanted to do. Oh a film yeah, about this. this was <laughs> this was a long protracted thing, and so Richard would be like, "Yes, maybe, no, yes," and so it was just back and forth, back and forth. Um, and Dan came back to New York. He moved back. He was in LA at that time, um, and he heard from some of his Slimmons friends that Richard fell off the map. And he hadn't heard from Richard, but he thought like this was his month of not being interested in the project. Not that he had disappeared in a larger sense. Um, and so then it was suddenly like, what's going on? And trying to figure out from more like that concerned friend, like friend acquaintance. Like they weren't like BFFs, but they were friendly. They hung out, things like that. Like there was, there was a relationship. Oh, there. yeah. There it was wasn't a, like just a fan. Yeah. It was, there was a true relationship. There was a relationship. But, um, but that being beside the point, he was concerned about him. And he talked to all these other people that were incredibly concerned about him. And they would put signs up in Slimmons, kind of like, Richard's not coming in today, tomorrow, the next day. But it was never like, when is he returning? 
Um, and so at this point, Dan had been kind of collecting some footage. He'd been shooting on his iPhone. Um, and now there's kind of like a new story here. Like, it's not the one he was interested in. He wanted to just sort of celebrate Richard and his Richardness, but then he fell into this other thing because Richard disappeared. Um, so it's shot some interviews with that, and he has a reality show producer background and is connected in the world for that reason. And First Look Media had a meeting with him and said, we'll give you X amount of money to put together a sizzle. So to cut together some footage, go out and shoot some stuff, let's see. But we really think it's it's a podcast. So Dan's never done a podcast before. He comes from reality TV. Um, I came onto the project at that point and helped him get the sizzle off the ground and shoot the interviews, not on a cell phone, <laughs> um, and get all these people on board. Um, and that was all very exciting, and people were excited about the project and passed it on to First Look, and then it was just kind of a waiting period and to see what would happen. And, and how, how much footage was shot for the sizzle? Like- how long know. did it take to kind of put that together? Uh, like uh, under a few months. It was okay. probably like two months of intense work, maybe, maybe less. Um, but it wasn't too bad. And then ultimately they were like, this is great. Yeah, we want it as a podcast. Like they were over it. Um, they liked it. They liked the idea very much. But it was it sort of validated for them like this is this could be a podcast. We don't really know what that means. Um, but we think that this could be it. So um Dan didn't know how to make a podcast. Um, First Look didn't really know how to make a podcast. So Pineapple Street Media had just been formed um, by Max um, and Jenna, and there are two founders, and they essentially partnered up with First Look at First Look's Asking. We got a producer in Henry Malofsky who knew how to make podcasts, Dan who had the connections, and then I came on to help do the story producing and doing all the archival research and finding all the folks and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the three of us together, not knowing how to do a thing like this, <laughs> came to make a podcast. So Henry had a lot of experience producing podcasts, but never like a deep dive into a person before. So that was a really new thing for him. Dan had no idea how to be a host or like to do the writing. That was all really new for him. And for me, it was like just new into the podcast world and thinking about, I realized that it wasn't really a different part of my brain. It was like exactly what I would always do, but now I was doing it for audio. So it was kind of easy in that regard. It was much easier, actually, for a lot of different reasons on this project. And we talked a little bit before the show yesterday, just kind of what a story editor means in podcasting world isn't necessarily what we think of when we're editing a story in documentary film. You kind of equated it closer to like a newspaper story editor. Um, so can you just kind of share a little bit about what it means to be a story editor? Sure. So there's lots of different names of what things are. So in terms of producers, um, producers mean to produce in a very literal way, which I don't know why film doesn't do this, but producers mean you're in charge of production. You are recording things. You are editing things. Um, it's all very, like, hands-on. Um, you have no director in podcasting, so it's really the producer that takes on that role. And then there are editors, um, and you have who are, like, story editors, very much out of the newspaper realm. Mm-hmm. And they're coming in to give feedback about what should be included, what, you know, where's problems. They give feedback in the writing in terms of the scripting, but a lot of it's like structural and like what is the tape we want to include and don't include. So it's really interesting because Dan and I come from video, so we initially, when we got every got everything together, we're like reading through transcripts because we don't know any different. I think that's our world. We're just used to going through transcripts. But all these people in audio won't don't like to read transcripts because it's all about how you hear it, like how people say a thing, which makes sense. 
but we're used to seeing people, so you get a lot more information. So learning to, like, most of the editors I've worked with, like, they don't want to read a script. They want you to tell them the script. They want to hear everything because that's how you're going to consume it as a listener. So on this podcast, I worked as a contributing producer role, but I'm working on one right now where I'm the editor, which is a little bit, like, I think very in line with my skill set, let's say. Cara would agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a – but our editor for Missing Richard Simmons, Joel Lovell, he also was the editor on Serial. Um, and he was an editor on S Town, and he left S Town in favor of Missing Richard Simmons. Oh, we stole him. Drama, right? <laughs> now, so we we got Joel partway through, and uh, and so he now works at Pineapple as well. Um, so yeah, so it's it's just a very different world. And I was saying to Trey yesterday, it becomes problematic. I get a lot of calls from film people because they're interested in making a podcast and they don't know how to do it. And they're always asking me for people that aren't the right people. So like Michael Beach Nichols, mm-hmm. he connect like a, a film guy through that he's worked with connected to me, and he's like, I want to hire an editor to edit a podcast in Avid. <laughs> I was like, first off, no one's going to edit anything in Avid for a podcast. <laughs> and secondly, you don't want an editor. You actually want a producer. Um, she keeps looking at you, Thomas, because I you know. are the producer. I just want to emphasize, right. you are the producer of this show, not me. We went through this last <laughs> week. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a thing of like, uh, it's different language. And so when you're kind of, you have a foot in both worlds, it can get a little confusing for people. And um, and just don't edit podcasts in Avid. That's stupid. Um, <laughs> if you so take nothing that. else away from this episode. <laughs> yeah, that this makes, is our contribution. It makes to no the, sense. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of people like that that are trying to figure out, because everyone's like, oh it could be a podcast um, like even Jason Osda reached out about a current project mm-hmm. and was like hey like this is and it's interesting it's interesting are, are people typically right in your opinion when they say it could be a podcast like what, what does that mean when they're saying it could be a podcast especially if they're filmmakers do you, what do you think they're actually trying to convey like why why go a podcast route rather than a film they don't have visuals and they don't have a good story often because they need the scripting to get through the story, and so they don't have the story that stands on its own. Um, so they want that kind of host scripting piece, um, and often they just don't have the visuals that are engaging enough or supporting enough, um, but they might have tape. They theoretically have good tape. And you can also get around not having like the best quality tape, um, it's just how like we don't have great tape and all of Missing Richard Simmons. Sure. Um, there's stuff from Dan's cell phone that's still in that show, uh, and, that's, and it can work, um, but yeah. So you said they, they don't necessarily have the full story, and you mentioned something about like they want the host to, to be a part of the story, which something Carr and I have talked mm-hmm. about is if you look at some of the most popular podcasts of all time that are storytelling podcasts, usually the host is heavily involved. Well, and I think it's interesting that you say Dan Taberski had never done this. You know, I, I think he's very effective, you know, yeah. as a first-time host out of the gate. Um, so well, I think that's kind of interesting. Did you, did you have did you a role in shape? Well, no, but I'm saying, like, he got a couple more seasons afterwards. Like, it's, you know, you're not always great off the bat. And right. he, yeah. part of him being great is, like, there's a team thing, but also having a good editor and just mm-hmm. really... I think it's hard for any of us that are in the freelance world to commit 100% to a project and for him to... For us, it, we, are in, we were in a weird position. We were really given a pretty like broad set of resources <laughs> in terms of monetary and just like support. Um, and that allowed for a lot of time and energy and effort to be put into this project that I think isn't typical. Because we spent almost a year on it. It's like six episodes. 
Was there ever, ever the desire to extend it beyond six episodes? No. Or was it supposedly a kind of, I guess, is that the six episodes, is that the 30-minute episodes, of, is that the equivalent of a short? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because even the episode <laughs> length is, yeah, is shorter it's like, than yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, it's shorter than a lot of them. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was just sort of, I don't know, it's kind of like when you're editing your films, like things kind of fall where they fall. And so mm -hmm. there was like, you can't be shorter than X point because mm -hmm. of ads. So you right. have to make money. So you can't be too short, but then also like making them too long. Like, do we need this? Is it too much for one episode? Um, but yeah, we're working on like a second and third, like mini seasons right now. And it's the same format. It's like five, six episodes each. Um, and that's fairly typical for these types of storytelling podcasts. Um, they're very like it's meant to be like a limited series just like you see on HBO or things like that it's not meant to go on forever going back to the host really quickly so as a story editor Dan is kind of the personality who is literally telling the story to the audience how much kind of shaping of his story did you do like did he bring in a script and you just kind of offered him suggestions well, or in terms of that like Joel was our main editor in that I was a producer in that project um, but we all um, gave feedback in terms of notes and how it would work is he would everything would kind of get outlined he would write the script all the tape would get put together by our handy dandy producer Henry and then we would sit in a circle and we would just listen through and take notes and just kind of share them and it was a very democratic process yeah, very collaborative mm -hmm. very very collaborative everybody was generally on the same page um in good ways of like pushing back in ways that that um I don't know the story got better as a result so like little things about like what do we need to hear in the first episode that like makes us care about Richard and there's like this one long interview, um, the Sklar brother interview mm -hmm. I think that's in there that gives us like that emotional tie-in but it's it wasn't there at first and so like through that kind of collaborative process it's like he doesn't exist in a, in a silo and I think that happens the people assume that like someone just comes in and writes it and says it and there's a lot of work and a lot of months that go into kind of editing that. Well, and I think it speaks to the testament of the team that people do think that he just comes in and says mm -hmm. it because it is it is told so superbly and it grips you from the start. So as kind of the story editor, the production, you, I want to make sure I say it right, the production. So, so in terms of that project, so the story editor one I was talking about yesterday was um, a project with The Wing that I'm right. doing called No Man's Land. So this one I was a producer on the project. Producer. And so you you actually did a lot of research for it too. So would you be the one who like finds the Sklar brother interview or find some of those archival Richard Simmons pieces? Yeah. So like a lot of the people you hear from like in that first episode, like Kathy, um, who's out in kind of middle of Nebraska, um, she's a person like these are people that I would go out and just try to find these stories. I had certain story ideas of what I want to find, and you always find someone else instead. Um, so people like that. A lot of the archival tape trying to think what's in there um but yeah the Sklar Brothers one was one we knew about right. beforehand so that one wasn't as um tricky to find but for instance like David Letterman stuff sure. or um Howard Stern stuff those are those are deep dives I think there was no shortage of <laughs> <laughs> he's a pretty prolific <laughs> guest prolific, on Letterman you know, it's true it's but they don't do any archival exactly. stuff so World by Pants doesn't yeah. do it so I found a super fan that has an archive of all of David Letterman's stuff so all the so people I got collected him. the VHS tapes from ages and ages exactly ago, yeah. so I reached out to him and I said here are these episodes and he digitized them for me and then emailed them to me and mm -hmm. then that's how we use them and then there's a crazy person in charge of um, Howard Stern site where he essentially transcribes like every episode of Howard Stern ever. This is just like a, a, 
like person a, that works for Howard Stern? No, like a dude. Just, like a, a, just a guy. One of the things, one wow. of my main research tools is there's always a super fan. Like there's yeah. someone that's like super obsessed somewhere in some recess of the internet and you just have to find them. So there's a guy called Mark Spriggan, markspriggan.com, and he has like every Howard Stern thing ever and you can search it and you can find it and then you can like focus in on what tape you need. Um, so it's a lot of that kind of stuff. Wow. That's who you look for. Yeah. Did you know to look for those people? Because this is your first time doing a podcast. Obviously, you've done yeah. documentary film. So my background when I was a teacher was I was a history teacher. So I'm used to like thinking in terms of research. And I'm, that's when I was interested in documentary, that's what I was interested in, is going and diving in these holes. And so mm-hmm. for me, just something that became really clear off the bat, and with Richard Simmons, was like, how are we going to find information? We find Richard Simmons super fans and finding, using those portals to get more information. And Yeah. So we did it in the last flight of Peter Ginn's. We needed somebody who, we, we need, he listened to BBC radio broadcast, and certainly BBC has an archive, and you can go to London, but the cheap way is to find that World War II buff who's collected as many old radio broadcasts that you can find, and that's where, where we kind of identified at least a little group that we could then go to BBC and talk to about. So they're always out there. I, I mean, that's fascinating, and I feel like a talk should be made just about, like, these super fans, but, like, how, how do you even find those people? You just, like, put a classified ad out? Like, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. It generally the not. old days. Yeah, <laughs> the right, old days. Right. I'm dating sometimes, myself. Well, no, sometimes, like, you can use Craigslist for that stuff, and we'll yep. do that, and just to kind of see what comes in, some weird stuff comes in. Um, so that's generally not the way you want to go. It's just finding your search terms, Car would say, and then I just kind of keep track of all the things that I look up over time so that I'm not kind of retreading the same space. But, like, I'm working on a current project about a TV show that's a follow-up to this one, and I was like, I know there, this fan is there. Like, I've known it, and it just, like, pissed me off that it took, like, four or five months for me to find it. But I knew I would find him. But it's actually sad because at the top of the site, it's like, if you don't see any updates, essentially he's passed on because he was very sick. So now it's like I found the super fan with all the stuff, and he's dead, and it's highly inconvenient for me, obviously, yes. which is really what it's about. Yes. So then I found the super fan that, like, took on his role after the fact, or so I thought, and I found this guy, I called him up in Florida. I was like, oh, you see, you made this site, and you must really like the show. And he's like, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? And I was so just, I was so mad. Um, so he just made the site. He's like, I just make websites. So I just like, you know, this guy was gone. So I just figured I'd just keep doing it. And I was like, oh, all right, you stink. So sometimes you find people like that, but a lot of times you find crazy super fans. And, and are, are people for the most part, other than that guy, pretty willing to be a part of the project? Oh, like yeah. it's kind of recognizing their fandom. Does yeah. that go a long way? Yes, it just sort of depends. So like Richard Richard Simmons was a little bit different because obviously he's a he's a person sure. um, in the world. So it's not just being a fan of a thing. Right. And he had relationships with a lot of people, and so that was a little trickier. So there were the people that I found on the internet that were like super fans of Richard and had all sorts of information, but the fans that were fans slash friends were much more guarded, much more concerned about Richard and his everything. So some of them, um, most of them are very, very supportive of the project. Um, and a lot of them, I think, are really sad about it, too. Sad about the project or just the fact that Richard's no longer a part of their life? A little bit about like the last episode in the end and, I believe, the lie that the manager told us. 
Um, essentially, in like our last episode of Missing Richard Simmons, we get the manager on the phone and he tries to like tell us the story that these people aren't Richard's friends, these are just the fans, and this is like, we should just buy into this, and then everyone's being ridiculous, but that's because I didn't really know Richard. And I would argue <laughs> that I have found enough stuff on the interwebs to um, refute that really clearly. Um, these were relationships that Richard cultivated. They were very, very strong. He reached out to them. He shared incredibly intimate things with them. He put out cries for help. These were not strangers. These were not just fans. They had a symbiotic relationship. So I think it was really hurtful for a lot of people to hear that. I think it was intentional that way. It was, it was meant to be like, here, we want to cut off these relationships. Um, because Richard, for now at least, is still a, a recluse. But it's sad. I mean, like, we interviewed Jerry, who's really old, um, and she has since passed away. And Richard, like, put a little Facebook post about, like, his dear friend who died. And we can now tell which posts are Richard's and not Richard's mm -hmm. because we know too much about Richard Simmons. So if you see a really long ellipsis, yeah. it's Richard. If it's yeah. not a long ellipsis, mm -hmm. it's a social media person fun things you get to learn and so this was like a real Richard post and he wrote it about this woman and it was just so sad because like essentially this podcast we were they she was being told that like she wasn't someone that mattered to him and it was like this really sad tri tribute to her like she did matter so that was I think a really tough thing for like critics of the podcast it's very easy to say these people should have minded their own business but these were people that had real relationships that Richard developed not them well, I, I, I do want to get into that a little bit. So Missing Richard Simmons, one of the most popular podcasts of, of all time, especially when it came out. Um, but it, it has been accused of maybe some unethical practices. And we may get into some of that or not. I might kind of yield to Carr and see how far she wants to push you. But I think just a general question of what does it mean when you have put in all this hard work and told the story is accurately and ethically as you feel you could have to then be accused of unethical practices. And, and I, I don't mean you personally, I don't mean Dan personally, I just mean the project in general. Um, it was frustrating because I think it was so the opposite. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that I know that were not on that. <laughs> lots of things that we uncovered that we had long conversations about protecting Richard and protecting his legacy and not wanting to do things to in any way shape or form hurt that um, and that was something that was incredibly important to Dan that we never say anything in a way that Richard would not agree with um, mm. and so it's kind of we, we operated from such the opposite position so I got in arguments with friends of mine that are journalists that were like, well, that's not telling the whole truth. You should have been putting out some of these negative stories we found. It's like, but that's not, we don't have to do that. We're not journalists. We're doing a nonfiction storytelling podcast and we're, and we're choosing to create a, a piece about like missing someone and then like learning about this person through like the act of missing them. And what does that mean? Um, we're not trying to just like unearth bad stuff. And obviously did that in the process, but we didn't share that. So that was a very frustrating thing because it was just very much the opposite from the making perspective. Were, were there questions or concerns regarding um, the participants who did choose? In other words, what concerns did they have? Those who, you know, were in this position of wanting to understand what happened or wanting to reach out, um, but yet also being, were they hesitant to participate? Um, Not 
Not really, because they had these relationships with Dan beforehand. So they knew Dan. They had worked out at Slimmons with Dan. So there was trust established. Yeah. It wasn't like the people that I talked to perhaps later on, the ones that I would find, were people that had those relationships with Richard, but in the most part didn't currently. Mm -hmm. So Dan really was in the know of the ones that had him in that moment. That's how this kind of all got made. So in our studio audience, should we take a call from our studio audience? No, it's, it's me. Um, I thought I turned this off. I'm sorry. This is the one thing you should edit. No, don't edit that. Um, you, you said something, Diane, and maybe I'm just dense, but it didn't really occur to me until you said this, but the title, Missing Richard Simmons, there's more than one way to take that. There's the way Richard Simmons is missing which is how I kind of have always taken it, but it is, Dan is missing Richard Simmons. His fans are missing Richard Simmons, and I think as soon as you look at the title that way, I, w- I won't say the ethical problems disappear, but I, I think it it is a good defense for you guys because it, it's not we're following this guy who's just disappeared. We're saying we do miss him, and, and we kind of want to know why because we do have a relationship with him. But, but something else you had mentioned, Diane, you talked about we had to withhold things. We couldn't share the whole story, and obviously you can. I mean, there's so much to get into. But you do, or, or we, Dan is a part of the story. There, there is kind of an element of self-reflexivity, and he says in some interviews, we do want to show you the process and those parts where we felt weird about knocking on his brother's door or going up to his house or those things. Um, so because you do see some of the process you know, as it happens. How, how did you kind of determine what to keep in and what to keep out that way? The stuff that went somewhere, they're like, there are lots of things that went down rabbit holes that we learned information, but it didn't serve the larger story. So they were just tangents. And I mean, they could be one-off things that are interesting to people or kind of sad or, or whatever the case may be, but the larger story about like what happened to Richard and why it matters what happened to Richard didn't serve the purpose. So we were transparent when it mattered. And then a lot of these kind of conversations we were having internally, we didn't use the content, so we just didn't get into it. But there were some weird things. So so what were some of the, because you talk about kind of the, the round circle and kind of the pushback in terms of, you know, the conversations you had among each other. Were there, you know, because certainly it does kind of trail into potential depression, you know, and if if that's part of the reason he's deciding to, you know, close himself off, or is it, it kind of a, a result of that, or does it prompt it? So it's, you know, what was kind of your baseline for, you know, where you would go and where you wouldn't go with some of those well, we were personal not, issues? Yeah, you know? we were not going to diagnose Richard, um, mm-hmm. so that was a thing. But we also, even though we weren't going to say all the things that we know, um, we were able to know for our own purposes. I guess this is sort of like unmappable when we were mm-hmm. able to, as a side note, so the film that Jasmine and I directed unmappable, we give sort of our subject a bit of the floor and we hear from him. But And for a lot of different creative reasons, we only wanted him in the film, but we needed to confirm for our purposes as, as storytellers what he was saying. So we may have um, not so legally gotten hold of some documents 
um, and took pictures of them all from the Raleigh court, and we were able to confirm the statement of the boy in the, in the, that we hear, hear about in the film, things like that. And the point wasn't to share that with our viewers. The point was as makers to feel comfortable with what we were doing and that we were, we were telling a story that we had at least checked was correct. And I think in Missing Richard Simmons, we knew we learned enough to know that the claims that, hey, he just doesn't want to hang out anymore, everybody should just mind their own business, just wasn't true. So we felt very, like, 100% we knew that that wasn't the case. So there was a number of things that happened, um, and, and we didn't want to oversimplify. It was just this or just that, and he's suffering from depression or whatever, but we wanted to make sure we at least gave you enough information to, to try and trust us that there were things going on, and this wasn't just someone who decided they wanted peace. Do you feel like any of the challenges that people have brought up on unethical grounds, do you feel like any of them are justifiable? Not necessarily that you would say you acted unethically, but you could see why people would raise that? No, um, not, no, sort of. Um, I think one of the things we've talked about as a team is wishing we had known people would respond to our transparency that way. So that way, especially like we were making things as they came out. Sure. So that was also kind of a crazy part of the process. So we're st we were literally trying to figure out what was happening and having some really crazy meetings while people were consuming and becoming obsessed with it. And it was like, ah, it was a lot happening all at one time because it was a real time piece. Um, I think what and what we're doing now for the follow up seasons is we're making them all ahead of time, which is really exciting <laughs> to have to like be able to do it before. But it also means that it helps you better understand the types of questions people are going to ask throughout. And we just didn't anticipate it. And I think had we anticipated it, we could have put some things in that would have clarified it. And so it's not that I think any of us feel or at least I can speak. I'm pretty sure I can speak for Dan and, and at least for myself that we don't feel like there's anything unethical, but it's more we could have addressed it in a different, like anticipated it. Do you feel like some of the backlash, and this is just kind of my thoughts, but some of the most popular podcasts, documentary storytelling types, if we look at Serial Season 1, we look at S-Town, we look at Missing Richard Simmons, there's, there's something about it that appeals to a general population, whether that's a celebrity that, that is missing or a murder that is perhaps wrongly prosecuted or, you know, just this, this guy that has all these crazy things going on in his there's life. Mystery. And there's, yeah, there's, there's mystery, there's darkness. Is that what makes these podcasts so popular? And is some of the backlash because I, I guess what I'm saying is I feel it holds more, if there's an unethical side, it's holding it up to the society that's consuming it rather than the people who are making it. Because it wouldn't be popular. People wouldn't listen to it if, if they weren't already predisposed to that kind of story. Sure. Um, I don't know there's a question there. Yeah, I mean, there's some weird feedback that we got. Like, if you're telling something that this many people are going to listen to, you have to, you know, have this extra level of due diligence. It's like, we were nobody. Like, to right. the extent that we were nobody, we were not serial. We didn't have This American Life putting this out. Same with S-Town. We were really just out of left field, sitting in a room, and then suddenly it came out, and we were all like, is anyone going to listen? Like, yeah. we did not have 
this knowledge that it would be a huge hit. I mean, obviously the hope was people will listen, but I, I don't, nobody was like, oh yeah, this is going to be the biggest thing ever. That was a pretty big surprise. Yeah. What happened? I am pretty sure if we thought that was going to happen, we would have had all the episodes in the can. <laughs> there was just, it wasn't anticipated. And so this idea that we should have done things differently because millions of people were going to listen, it's like, well, how do you know? Right. Sure. Um, so we did the best that we could from the perspective of like, if anyone's going to listen, this is what they should hear. Um, and the true crime stuff, it is, it is like a weird thing. People are obsessed with it. That's, I don't know, there's a voyeurism in people. Right. They just want right. to kind of experience this other, whatever, that they don't get up close. But I think for Richard Simmons, it, it was that. But I think part of it, too, was just thinking about the timing when it came out. It came out after the election. People were sad. <laughs> people were over politics. Um, and all these podcasts were coming out to talk about politics and yeah. talk about, like, Trump being the worst thing ever. And then we show up with, like, Richard Simmons is missing. <laughs> and I was like, what? Oh, my God. Um, and it became a whole thing. Like, even Trump, when he was, like, um, before he was elected, made a, like, someone asked him about, like, what about Richard Simmons? He's missing. He's like, oh, we got to get him back. We got to find him. We didn't use that because we didn't want to support Trump's voice being anywhere else. But the point being, like, I think everybody needed a mental break sure. from politics. So there was something about our piece that was just really timely. And then it had nothing to do with anything happening at the time. Um, and people wanted that. So I think the true crime was an element, but it was really that nostalgia for a better sure. time and wanting to connect to that and be like, yeah, what happened? Like, let's feel those things again. And that resonated. But, but I do think it's one of the fascinating things. And, and, and to Trey's point, I think, you know, the same could be said about the most popular documentary films are also the most ethically problematic. I mean, if, if we look at them that way, and the ones that have been most successful. But I, I do think, you know, in whether it's Missing Richard Simmons or, or Serial, it's, you know, one of the fascinating things about this form of storytelling is that you have a set of known facts, as you said, that you're kind of going on the air with and then how those change, <clears throat> as you said, because you're kind of in real time, and so you're absorbing new information as you're kind of releasing more information. So I think it um, makes storytelling much more complex, but certainly adds a layer of richness in terms of we now, you know, we don't just have an audience listening and digesting. We have an audience that has the ability to participate, but certainly as a producer or as a story editor, that gives you a lot more to wrangle with um, and kind of thinking now how does this information impact what I said two episodes ago um, and and how the world is viewing that through a, a moral lens. So it's, I'm not sure there's a question yeah. there, but I think it's that that also that thing if you, because you know, some questions have been, well, how do we respond to this? How do we control it? But in some ways you you may or may not but you know even in that decision though to you know produce everything ahead of time and then release are you miss, missing some of the magic that mm -hmm. that creates even if on one hand you're able to and better answer some of the challenges of that yeah I think something that was probably not ideal and a little bit problematic in this that that, that is a technical thing that you guys wouldn't necessarily know in podcasting is something called windowing mm -hmm. 
So essentially this meant that we dropped our first two episodes on Stitcher and they had this like access for like Stitcher premium to an episode a week ahead. And so what ended up yes, happening because this yeah. exploded is that like people like Entertainment Tonight all subscribed mm-hmm. to Stitcher. And what they did was like my mom was calling me and be like, it's on E.T. And it was like spoilers for next week's episode. So it was a weird thing because it was such a phenomenon that like I, the content was getting out there kind of sooner than we could even control and like the mainstream way that people were consuming the story. So all these people had heard bites like that were a week ahead and mm-hmm. it just, it added a different layer of complexity about like who knew what and then people reacting to that. And sometimes it helped. I mean, I, I you know, heard from people that were telling me things based on that information that were inside sources that wanted to make sure we got things right and what we they felt like they we didn't get right um they would tell me these things and we tried to explain like why we're doing the things that we're doing but it was interesting i mean we got a lot of real-time feedback from people in his world so i feel we could talk about missing richard simmons all day but the last question that i want to ask you and this can be uh, specific to Richard, Missing Richard Simmons or any podcast you've, you've been working on, but kind of what is the biggest challenge of working on a podcast as opposed to making a documentary film? And are there things about podcasting that you find liberating as opposed to working on a documentary film? I'll start with liberating. Okay. It's so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> just in general, just it so is, much easier. It's just so much easier um, in a lot of ways in terms of, cause you're not trying to get the image. And so there's a lot of things that you can do just having a mic and like the the intimacy you can get with people. So for instance, Missing Richard Simmons, we're talking about people like who weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds and people that wouldn't have wanted to talk to us because their image had to be on the screen. And so there was something that was really helpful in that project about getting people to share things with us that probably wouldn't have if they had been visually there. Um, so it allowed for us to get kind of that intimacy in the story uh, much easier. Um, one of the things that's annoying about podcasting right now is it, it, it's just trying to figure out its way legally and with rights and stuff, and that's mm-hmm. all. Nobody did releases. That's, like, a new thing. So it's very new to have releases. It's very new to, like, license stuff, which is kind of crazy. So they're trying to figure it out, but lots of places haven't figured it out either. So if you're trying to license content from folks, they're charging you the same amount as if you're making a film doesn't make sense because you're not using any of the visuals so but they're charging you the same price so it makes the budget unnecessarily high for archival Mm -hmm. licensing and hopefully that'll get corrected but right now it's unnecessarily expensive and right now they they think the numbers of listeners translate the dollars so you know much like the way when you know whether it be Ken Burns or others who proved that there was an audience for historical films then the archive budget shot up so Eventually, maybe it'll <laughs> even its way out, but it's a limited commodity. I, I am curious, though, you know, the story structuring um, is not that different, in a sense, from a documentary film. Um, but certainly, when you kind of condense that same structure of, you know, what pulls my audience in at this point, what pulls them in at this point, and you condense it to an episodic. And then it's kind of like, how do I remind my audience of where we were? And then how do I kind of, you know, give them something new? So what challenges did that present to you as kind of a storyteller of, you know, thinking of it in a long frame of the film and now in a episodic manner? Yeah. I, I actually found that it, it makes us um, as documentary storytellers much better suited to this than a lot of people mm-hmm. that come out of radio. 
Um, I've worked with a lot of audio producers since this project, and I've realized that they're really afraid of having a lot of tape. And that's all we do in documentary filmmaking is have an excessive amount of footage. That's what we just do. So it's like I've worked with people, and they're like, oh, we can't do this. And we just have too much tape. We can't get any more. And it's like, what? But this would be this great person. That, and it's like, no, we can't do it. Um, and that's insane to me. So what I found is we generally, at least myself, um, thinking about telling documentary stories, you're thinking always this bigger picture and how am I going to kind of break this story up. But a lot of people that came out of radio for the past 20 years are used to having like a segment and it's never longer than like one episode. And so it's a weird time that those people with the radio experience aren't necessarily positioned to do this work better. Um, I think our skill set translates more mm -hmm. um, because we're thinking about that kind of long-form storytelling, and I think it's just thinking of it as a narrative arc spread out. And so for me, that's what I get to do. It's really fun. So I like the editor stuff a lot because that's mm -hmm. how my brain works. Add and that to the promo material. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out, radio. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's just fun. It's fun to think about, like, how can we piece these things together? And you know when things aren't working, and sometimes you know, you lose a fight about it because it's like, oh, it has to be this way. But I, I'm a big fan of saying nothing has to be a certain way. So there's like some famous, like This American Life producer or something that says everything has to be chronological in audio. Like that's how you have to tell people, like tell stories. And that's the, and I coming from a history background, I'm like, well, that's boring because people don't care yet. So it's one thing if you're telling a story where like you're giving us a reason to care really fast, but just to like do a historical piece that was like, let's learn about Richard's backstory. Like who cares if we don't know that he's missing and that Dan cares about him. And this historical piece I'm working on right now where it's about women in history who have been overlooked or misrepresented. And it's like we're doing standalone pieces. So it's like one episode is like 40 minutes or so. But there's this desire and this push to like, oh, everything has to be in order. I'm like, that's crazy. So it's kind of fun to push against what the accepted norms of uh, audio have been. And I don't know why it became that way, but it, it is fun to play with what we do more in, in doc storytelling. It, it is interesting, though, because I think it in, in whether it's Richard Simmons, whether it's Serial, whether it's the Jinx, it's always that question of, like, when, when does the storyteller know something that they're withholding from the audience? And I think even though we've done that for years in documentary film. It's kind of that adjusting of the chronology to kind of move things. There are certain films, though, where there's visual evidence of the adjusting mm -hmm. of the chronology, you know, in the sense of somebody has a haircut or somebody's teeth change or their T-shirt isn't wearing. So, so do you think in some ways that the audio world gives you more flexibility to, you know, think about that altered chronology, or, and again, it gets a little bit more complicated when we look at that kind of that notion. It's like, well, it's kind of real time playing out, but is it real time playing out? You know, in that ability to withhold and deliver and withhold and deliver. And I, I think the yeah. fact that, you know, in, in your podcast and serial and, mm -hmm. and very successful ones, the fact that the host is kind of talking you through it, it. I think there's a trust that we all kind of mm -hmm. develop with him or her, and we're like, whatever story he or she is going to tell, we trust them, even if they are going to adjust the chronology. Yeah, and I think part of it, too, I think the problem probably comes in, and this is something like us telling that dropped all in one day, but when you're dropping something week to week to week, people can Google in between. So it's mm -hmm. like, are they going to Google your story? And if so, then why does it keep going? Like, what can you offer that isn't Googleable? 
um, from that week-to-week basis. It's going to get people wanting to know the next little piece, and which mm-hmm. is also part of why you have to lay your cards out really clearly at the beginning. Like, Heaven's Gate, yeah, they all killed themselves. Shocker. We know this. We have to say this, and then we can move on because that's, uh, we have to give you the information you learn when you first look on, look, look it up, what you might already know, remind you of that, and then move forward. Cara, I'm going to look at you because I feel you might have more questions, but I... <laughs> I do want to move on. No, I do think that, <laughs> no, yes, I do. I do think that's, that's, I think that's kind of a really interesting point. Um, and I don't think that I've thought about it from a, a documentary visual standpoint, but yes, that idea of like, what can we possibly tell people now that they don't already know? And, and so it does have to move beyond the facts and to kind of Trey's point, you know, it, it's, how the story is told in some way that keeps that listener not so much the facts because they can they can look them up themselves so much and and there's like i don't know whoever said that you might know Cara, but like the idea that like when video like film what you see is the information what you hear is the emotion Mm -hmm. and so with audio just having that it gets it's in your earbuds it's in your earballs right it don't mm-hmm. exist but it's like it's so close it's so intimate you feel like someone's whispering the story to you so it feels personal even when it's not personal which i think mm-hmm. is another thing too it just it, people feel people who love this type of storytelling just feel so connected to it in a way i don't typically hear people talk about tv or movies right. mm-hmm. the name of the podcast one of the most popular of all times all time missing Richard Simmons. You also mentioned Heaven's Gate, which is a podcast you have worked on, uh, both available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I, kn- I know you're working on future projects. Can you tease those at all, or do those have to kind of remain quiet at the? Um, a little bit of both. Okay. So follow up to Missing Richard Simmons. There's going to be two mini seasons coming out. Um, so I worked on the second one, and so that will be coming out hopefully early next year. Um, it is about a TV show I'd never seen before, but that's all I'm going to offer up. <laughs> and it was, I thought I was getting punked on the first day, so there's that too. Um, and then the first mini season that'll be out hopefully soon is on Y2K. Um, and it, it's again a story that Dan has a personal connection to me. We were all somewhere in uh, at 2000, but his story, there's, there's a reason and a resonance there for him. And then I'm working as a story editor on a podcast called No Man's Land that comes out next month. Um, that's the one about women in history, and, and that's with The Wing, um, which is a women's social club. Mm-hmm. They're all very fancy. And, and they have, like, a publication called No Man's Land. So there's no, wi- no, ma- no male voices in the series. That's kind of our shtick. So it's all women telling women's stories, which is surprisingly hard to do because we're talking about people that are dead or long dead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's a little hard. You can only be so picky. You're like, yeah, but nope, no, no men. So we're we're trying to make it happen. So you're pretty deep into the podcasting world now, Mm -hmm. and still finding a way to balance documentary filmmaking and teaching. And I don't know if balance is the right (laughs) word. I would say I'm hustling still, and um, I'm very fortunate that I get paid to learn things, and so I get to just kind of go down these deep dives and. It's an unusual gig. I mean, there are people that work on news programs, and every day you're, you're getting a new news and you're reporting on it and moving on. It's like I get to spend like nine months a year with these projects. Um, and so it's, it's pretty fortunate just to spend that time thinking about it and deepening your understanding. So it's pretty great. Well, check out all those podcasts. Um, 
if, if they're anything like Missing Richard Simmons, they're, they're going to be great and popular and definitely worth a conversation. No, uh, pressure. no pressure. No, no pressure. <laughs> Thanks for that. No, it's, it's going to be great. It's going to be just like Deeks and Docs, one of the most popular podcasts of all time at the Wake Forest University number documentary one, film program. Yeah, number one at Wake Forest. Um, we're going we're gonna to shift a little bit. Um, normally we do Doc Talk where we talk about a film that is associated with the film the students are making. Obviously today we have focused on podcasts and one of the podcasts that I, I don't know if this is a fair justification, but it seems that it is kind of tied in a way to Missing Richard Simmons. I've heard Dan bring up S-Town. You mentioned an editor uh, from S-Town came into your, your project and, and they're different stories, but they do seem to be tied together. So, so S-Town. Um, which is another incredibly popular show, uh, podcast on Apple. And um, basically, uh, I'm just curious of, of your thoughts. And Cara, Thomas, if, if you listen, there's, there's not a lot of uh, direction with this conversation, but just kind of chatting a little bit about S-Town. What, what were your thoughts you know, when you, you heard it the first time? Um, my initial thought was there's there's a lot of talking for those first two episodes, <laughs> and I was sort of like, all right, where where are we going with this? Um, and I appreciate how they talk about it, like thinking about it like a novel, and I think I appreciated it more structurally at the end than when going through it. I was kind of like, what it, what is this? Like I felt like I didn't have a guide until the end of episode two, um, and I was only listening because. I'm supposed to listen to this. Like it's supposed, you know, it's like, this is the follow up to serial. It's supposed to be good. So I have to buy in because I think something's going to happen. When you say supposed to listen, do you mean like just kind of as a A listener or a person or a Just like a person in the world. Like you're just, you know, you're supposed to know what's going on. So I'm like, Oh, I should listen to this and I'm listening and I don't know why. (laughs) Um, and then we got to the why and it's like, okay, that was two episodes. Um, so I, I did enjoy it. I didn't, I did like it. I, I thought it was interesting. So Joel Lovell, who's the editor of that and the editor of our podcast talked about in the process, they talked about, um, coming up with like a game for your cell phone so that you would be, because it's so easy to space out because it's so dense S town. It's yeah. really hard to focus. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you would be able to like play like a Tetrisy type thing on your phone, which would keep you engaged in the story because you'd be distracted a little bit and not getting distracted by other content and I thought that was interesting and telling because it is really dense yeah um, and it is kind of I found myself having to go back more than I normally do in podcasts to to, under, to know what was being said because I would find myself tuning out in pieces um, I don't know that that's a bad thing that they're asking more of us but it was also interesting because they, they dropped it all in one day so I think part of its success was doing that. I think if it had done weekly, they would have had a huge drop off that second week. Right. Um, so by dropping it, that you could get over that initial hump that first day, and pe- or you saw people tweeting like, oh, look, it's totally worth it. You're going to get to this. It caused people to listen through what I think people might not have otherwise done. So. And for those who may not have listened, first of all, go listen. Um, but yeah, it, it essentially starts off as like a unsolved murder and then it turns into the person that brought Brian Reed, the reporter, down is no longer with us, and it becomes an investigation of that man's life. So, Essentially, um, Trey just spoiled the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did say that. go listen to it first. He does that every week. Well, yeah. they should have some context. It's hard to talk talking about, about. <laughs> talking about things. Yeah. Every week he suggests something. And, it, and it's it. also been out for like a year and a half. So. Sure enough, yes. Um, That's true. Yeah, I... I Thomas, have you have you listened to S Town? I listened to Serial, but Serial not S Town. 
Um, and I know Kara is making am, her way through. I'm making my way through it. <laughs> it's dense. It is dense. Um, and, and I do th- I think um, Macklemore obviously is fascinating. Uh, but, but after a while, it's kind of like, okay, where, where's that story going? And then, right. you know, where's the next story going? Um, but I certainly, there's enough there to kind of keep me tuned in. But it is a commitment. <laughs> You know, in terms of, you know, hours. And sometimes there's just not enough hours in the day. Um, Did you get to the ethical stuff yet? I mean, like, the big one? I'm in the midst of the ethical stuff. Yeah, so in exploring a man's life, sometimes secrets are revealed um, that he would have kept secret. And John McLemore, that he would have kept secret while he was alive. But now that he has passed... Um, Brian Reed, the reporter, reveals some private details about him, which in turn leads to a lawsuit from the estate of John B. McLemore. Well, part of this, too, that I think is important to note is that he tells us that he didn't want it out. So Brian Reed, the reporter, says, hey, he didn't want this said. I'm saying it anyway because he's dead and doesn't believe in the afterlife. So all's fair. And that just felt shallow it did for me that did not ring true if someone tells you not to say something just because they don't believe in an afterlife and they're dead does not seem like a good enough excuse he could have not shared that point with us um and i'm surprised that he did i don't know why he did he he also says he feels it's essential to understanding who john is as a person and one can argue yes or no um and I think a year ago, I would have agreed with you. I, I would have said just because somebody's dead doesn't mean you can air everything. But also, I don't know. I, I struggle with that because there isn't necessarily a reputation to defame anymore. But I don't know. It, it's it's tricky ground to me. To me, it's not the reputation. He just he could have just said that. It's just the part where he's sort of matter of fact, like, well, he's dead and doesn't believe in the afterlife. Like, sure. he just didn't need to say that bite. The, the I have nothing. I have no issue with him deciding to include it if that was something he grappled mean. with. But it's like it felt like a little flippant to me. Like I'm saying that this is okay for this reason, and then it's important to understand him. I get that, but like, eh, it, I, it, mm. it didn't seem to me to be indicative of the relationship he seemingly had established with him. Not, I think when I read it, that's kind of when I like, oh, well, yeah. you know, there may have been better ways to put it, perhaps, but you know, I don't, I can't say that I have listened to enough of it to to really make a call on that. But it, it did surprise me as to your point, being a little flippant and, and not indicative of the relationship, but, yeah. I thought you were looking up like you might say something Well, I, I mean, it, it, it's kind of like, I don't want to completely go back to Richard Simmons, but I think it's kind of like, you know, what is that line of somebody not agreeing to share, but we share anyway because he's passed or kind of that somebody who says he doesn't want to be found and yet there's a search for him. I think it, it's the, those, you know, any privacy questions are blurry, you know, lines to begin with, but it's kind of that point of, you know, you know, storytellers, we've long had that question of what is consent and what is permission? Um, and, you know, how, do I reconcile what I think is important for you to understand this person as a character? And I think in some ways that's what 
Richard Simmons, missing Richard Simmons does is it, it fleshes out why there may be reasons based on what it means to be a celebrity, what it means to enter public life, what it means to you know, get out of public life. And even in the Macklemore case, and again, I don't know enough to comment, so at some point I really just need to be quiet. Um, but in some ways, his story is complicated because he invites a man down sure. to tell the story yeah. of other people sure. who did not invite that, you know, um, you know, did not put a sign out that says, come tell the story of me and my town. But then ultimately, if he's doing that, then does he leave himself open in a sense to have this well, explored? I won't yeah. say many because I certainly don't know if everyone feels this way, but I know um, one of the main people he talks to defends Ryan mm -hmm. Reed against yeah. the lawsuit. He says he's just doing his job and mm -hmm. we shouldn't sue somebody for doing their job. And so even though it is an exploration of John's life, it is also an exploration of the town. But a lot of the people, or at least one of the main people featured in the show, don't seem to have a problem right. with it. Yeah, I agree with Karen that he was invited down there, and I think that changes everything to me. Like, right. I, I do think there is a better way for Brian to say that one piece, but I think the, the story as a whole, the idea of a lawsuit, I think that's all crazy. Um, but I think that was just bad scripting in my mind. The story editor. Says the story editor. Yes. <laughs> um, do you feel that S-Town is tied to missing Richard Simmons in some way? Is, is that a fair argument to make? I mean, they are different stories, but mm -hmm. the fact that I have kind of heard them side by side a few times today makes me think that they are tied together in some way. They came out at the same time. I guess Tom came out right after, and there were ethical concerns about both, and they got drowned out with S-Town, and they got elevated with Missing Richard Simmons. And I think it's interesting because in terms of Richard Simmons, this is a person who is a celebrity and has chosen to live his life publicly, and then in turn you kind of put your life up for critique in a way, whereas John McElmore was a private citizen. So it was interesting to me to see people react differently to the ethical concerns they had, because I would have thought they would be more concerned about a private citizen than a public figure who is, was incredibly public with his life. Um, but yeah, that's not how it shook out. So think back, Diane, to you know, Grey Gardens, and the questions that get raised, and you know. If you need me to rain her, you know, you just, tell, you just no, 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 no. I'm just going to say, teleport yourself to the future, where you missing Richard Simmons is going to be a cornerstone of conversation and ethical, <laughs> you know, classes for for years to come. It's not necessarily a bad place to be. Um, because you know these these are the stories that force us to reflect on what does consent mean, what does you know, what is privacy, you know, when does a public figure not become a public figure? So I I do think um, these stories serve storytellers well. Um, you know, yes, the audience consumes it for one set of reasons, but I think we consume it. Um, in a way that makes us think about what we do and, and our craft and the decisions that we make. So um, there's much to be said um, for, for what it allows us to consider. I think one thing I've come across in um, current research I'm doing for a different project is the term non-ebrity. 
to a celebrity for essentially no good reason. Um, and it's sort of the opposite, <laughs> where it's like you're a private citizen and you've been thrust into the celebrity mm-hmm. light, but it hasn't necessarily, like a John McElmore is a private citizen, but is now sort of a celebrity, but not a celebrity. Mm-hmm. So there's this term non-ebrity, and like what does that mean? Because right of privacy is generally only applied to people like Richard Simmons, like in terms of po- right of publicity. Mm-hmm. So like who can use your likeness? Um, and so it's interesting now to think about like these people who are private citizens and are end up in our films or in our podcasts, and suddenly now people know who they are, um, and what responsibility is there with that? And in a much different way, simply because of the nature of the internet, you know. So I mean, it wasn't necessarily something we worried about in the 1970s or the 1980s. I mean, even if somebody recorded, who was going to come over and look at all the old VHS tapes, you know? But in other words, they are now kind of put in, and so his name escapes me, but some of the people in S-Town who, you know, play this crucial role who I think one of them said, I, I don't have, I'm not getting any of the benefits of this, you know, but there's 50,000 emails, you know, in my inbox every morning of people who want me to respond in some way to, you know, my role in this and the town. And, and so, yes, they kind of really had no agency in it to some degree. You know, they agreed to talk into a microphone at some point, perhaps without necessarily realizing you know, the 40 million folks out there listening, and then those, you know, if we call the super fan, think of what we might generate in, a, in an internet world, you know, based on some of this. So, so yeah. His name escapes me as well, but he is His, the one who actually is defending Brian, Brian Reed, Reed too, right, so. yes. Um, um, and it's interesting that you bring up the right of publicity, because that is the lawsuit that mm-hmm. is essentially slapped against Brian Reed, is, yeah, people, mm-hmm. even though John B. McLemore is not a celebrity, they're now you know, saying that his right of publicity was vile, not his right of privacy was invaded, but his right of publicity kind of appearing in this show and his likeness being used. That has not held up as yes. someone who has, de- or like, not specifically just to this particular lawsuit, as someone who has looked at a lot of right of publicity cases in the past mm-hmm. six months. Um, that is not something I have found has held up, and I think it is something that should. Um, right of publicity does change state to state, and I mm-hmm. think that there these laws just feel dated to a time from before reality TV and mm-hmm. reality storytelling and um, in that form. And I, and I hope to some extent that it changes. I've heard like little bits here and there from lawyers that are they're working on getting it changed, but it is very tricky um, because it, it isn't meant to cover the average person. Thomas, anything you want to add? Just in listening, I think it's interesting because it kind of goes back to what you were talking about, how the audience kind of is reflected the fact that they're listening to this stuff and I would think that the audience being alive would be harder on missing Richard Simmons because they can put themselves in 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 his shoes and be like well they're making the you know it's making him up making it up about him and this this other fellow uh, John John McLemore yeah. yeah he's passed away so it's like they just don't connect with him and they see it more as like a history lesson. So I, I can see how why they would do that, but I personally would go even farther and think, well, Richard Simmons is alive. If he wants to continue to tell his story, he has the ability to do so. And this is just one person talking about their relationship with this, with this man. So 
yeah, I, that's my two cents. And but. he signed like a big licensing deal right after the podcast. Richard is fine. Um, like, <laughs> he's got a lot coming out this year. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah, like he's in terms of those types of things. I mean, not to say that there wasn't. Um, I mean, obviously, he was under a microscope after the the podcast, and I think it has been very difficult for his housekeeper and the things that have been hard initially afterwards. But I do think he has the ability, if he so chooses, to comment on things, and he just hasn't. Yeah. Maybe he'll change his mind, but not yet. Yeah, but I, I think that is a great point. Um, you know, he does have the agency to tell mm-hmm. his story if he wants to come back in, and John B. McLemore doesn't. And I think the reason why also is because he's a celebrity, so he's chosen this right. life. And, you know, I mean, you can choose that life, see what it's like, and then retreat. There's plenty of people out there that were famous for a year, and then they just kind of go under the radar. He lived this life for at least 30 years. Like, right. And also in late 70s. And we talked about this in class. Did anybody care that Richard was missing before this podcast? You know, like, we nobody was even aware of it. So what is that going to tell? As far as the general public. TMZ now. <laughs> TMZ. Yes. So those if you were watching those TMZ, bulwarks of democracy. You would have known, Trey. You really got to get up on your journalism. It is, it is kind of shocking how much TMZ kind of breaks. Well, and that, and that, that is, that is it. and it's that question of even, that's a whole new, that's a whole world un, in and unto itself, if I'm not sure I'm you know, spitting that out. But it's, it's kind of like, yes, there's an audience in that world who sees the world differently than maybe perhaps the rest of us who weren't quite so aware and then kind of just get drawn in like, oh, you know, there's a whole community of people who are worried and interested and who knew mm-hmm. you know so so S-Town if if you forgive me for spoiling it already and you want to check it out it is definitely worth a listen um, Missing Richard Simmons all of them listen to them all um, we're going to move on to our weekly game did, <laughs> did, did we want to ask a question I, of the audience I, I thought about it I was scared that they might not be ready do you have a question studio audience Okay. <laughs> Can you d- distill them to just one or two? Well, That's what editing's for. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> we don't have to tell this chronologically. That's true. That's editing. That's true. Yeah, it is. Okay. So you're saying that the Letterman stuff you got, you did, you just had to, you didn't have to pay Letterman. We fair used it. I keep I keep telling you no, about fair use. It's like she doesn't really want to kind of you know ingest I'm that. I've gotten a lot of fights with lawyers about fair use um, that are representing us. So somehow I became like the legal person at Pineapple in some weird way, which doesn't make any sense. But um, I've had a lot of conversations where it's they're used to like so for instance for Heaven's Gate, um, Scripps owns like Midroll, it owns Stitcher, so like all these people own each other. So essentially they were the ones paying for this podcast. Mm-hmm. And Scripps lawyers were representing us in, in fair use claims, like that we want to want to make that argument, and they are used to suing people that <laughs> that are using their content. They're not used to having to make arguments for fair use, and we got in so many fights on the phone. This one um, lawyer told me I was trying to steal, that I was essentially a thief. How could I do these things? And I was like, well, here's the four factors of fair use. This is why it's fair use. And she just was like not having it. So we got, we went around her, but it was, um, it's a thing. I mean, we, we relied on it heavily for Richard Simmons. There's certain things you can and you can't. 
music these days is really hard to fair use. They're always going to come after you. Um, but for other content, it depends on how you use it. But for the most part, we've done what we can to make it fair usable. Well, so essentially what people want to do and like in a film, like you need like essentially a letter of support for like a fair use argument because fair use isn't like a thing you can do. It's like an argument in court if someone were to sue you. So it's whether or not this argument is like holds any water. And so for people to have the risk of putting this out and there's a risk of lawsuit, they want to see a letter from an attorney saying, we believe the usage of this content of this archival is fair use because that doesn't mean that it, it will land that way if there is a lawsuit, but it means that there's a lawyer saying, yes, I believe this to be true. Um, it's also good to find very sympathetic lawyers that really like pineapple, which I did, <laughs> which is really helpful. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, it's it, for like films, it's the same way. Like you can't get error and emissions insurance unless you have that down. And again, it's not like you can't, you're not paying for it. It's, it's just saying like, this is what we think. We'll continue the conversation, Bridget. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else from the studio audience have a question? <laughs> do you ha do you have another? I did, but I forgot. Sorry. That's alright. Okay. We won't judge you. <laughs> I'm sure it was very good and profound. And if you remember it, just chime in. Um, so Cara's yeah. I was just really excited. We talked about fair use. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and no, never mind that. There, I'll tell you a story after the microphones are turned off. About lawyers. Mm, about lawyers. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll move on to the weekly game segment. Um, each week we, we create a new game. I create a new game. This strikes fear <laughs> in my heart. It'll be fun. It's, it's sure. some of my best work. Um, this week. You know, I was the kid who never had birthday parties because I didn't want to play the game. No, this yeah. is, it's just trivia. Like, I'm not going to make you <laughs> do anything other week. than answer questions. Um, so we talked a lot about podcasts. <laughs> the name of this segment is the What, 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 Wadcast. So I'm going to read to you the synopsis of what I think is a fictional podcast oh, and whose last syllable rhymes with pod. So you'll take that and then you'll just add cast on the end. So, for example, if I gave you the following description, this podcast is just about clapping. That's all it is, hours and hours of clapping. The answer would be the Applaudcast. Get where I'm going with this? Yeah. So sure. the last syllable or the only syllable I will rhyme know. with pod. And then you just add cast. You guys look thrilled to play this. <laughs> he said this was his best one. I didn't say it was my best. I said it was one of my best. I still think Harry Kane was my best. Um, you, you guys want to give this a shot? You guys seem thrilled and excited. Sure, Trey. Okay, good. Because you were going to have to do it anyway. We're not editing this out. Okay. Um, okay. Audience participation. Is yeah, hard. yeah. you guys yes, can all work yes, as a team. Yes, In fact, right. there are some that probably only Thomas would get. So. I was going to say, help us out, Thomas. Yes. Why would I? How would I? You'll see. Um, okay. So we'll okay. start easy. Are you a groundskeeper? Would you rather manicure your lawn than your hands? Do you know all the brands of fertilizer that your local Home Depot carries? Then this is the show for you. Huh. It's the Sodcast. Uh, the Sodcast. Nice. Come on, Bridget. Yeah. Yeah, you got to scooch up. Yeah, yeah, get over here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. That was the Sodcast. Okay, so the word before cast yes, always rhymes with Sod. Yes. Or pod. Yes. Right. That's what I tried to express in the directions, <laughs> but I probably did a terrible job yeah. of it. 
Um, okay. Bridget got it. Yes. Yeah. One of us. Everyone got it. We'll say everyone I got it. I want to know how much time you spent. Yeah, like 10 minutes. Yeah. Dreaming <laughs> I usually don't think of it until the day of, and it probably shows. <laughs> um, all right. Number two. Finally, a three-hour-long weekly show devoted to a filmographer's most taken-for-granted piece of equipment. This one technically doesn't rhyme, but... Lovecast? No. Let's try it. No, it, it, cinema, <laughs> so cinematographers. A three-hour-long weekly show. Something maybe you would put your camera on. Oh, a try. Try podcast. Oh, well, yeah. see, I thought. Well, I was thinking that was too close to pod. Well, yeah. it, it's it you is said pod. Okay. With pod. No, yeah. Okay, fine. All right. You didn't say. All right. Is pod. Some, <laughs> a lot of this is is five so hour. When did you make this? At about four fifty. <laughs> three o'clock. Right before <laughs> All right. It's the show all pescatarians have been waiting for. Main brother fishermen John and Don outline in great detail and heavy New England accents the history of America's favorite white fish. Codcast. The Codcast. Very good. Now we're getting it. Now we're getting it. Very good. Cara, number whatever. (laughs) Join former executives from Enron and Lehman Brothers as they share the tricks of the inside trade, telling listeners how to commit and get away with white-collar crime. Broadcast. The Fraudcast. <laughs> See, once you get it, it's fun. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. You just got to test it a few times. All right. A little Alex Goodney. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get a little bit tougher with this one. This is for all the literary-minded people out there. All right. The surviving members of Captain Ahab's fateful whaling expedition offered their thoughts on what went wrong over dinner at one of Chicago's most overlooked deep-dish establishments. If you don't know Deep Dish in Chicago, maybe you know the sh- name of the ship in Moby Dick. I don't know the name oh of the ship. Gosh. Wrong crowd. <laughs> Wrong crowd. <laughs> okay, I was an English major. That's the Pequod cast. Well, I was, Pequod. In, I was okay. an English major, but I filed that away to not needed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you never know when it's going to come up. All right, this one, this one might be for Thomas. Superman's greatest enemy, sorry Lex Luthor, waxes poetic on why he hasn't been able to bring down his arch nemesis while positing the theory ad nauseum that Clark Kent isn't who he appears to be. Anybody else know? Go for it. Zod. Yeah, General Zodcast. Very good. Are you uh, labeling me as the... the comic book, comic nerd. book nerd? Yes, okay. considering way. that you've brought it up twice in the past few right. episodes. I'm right there with you, though. There's nothing wrong with that. All right. Good company. I'll put you out of your misery. This will be the last one, and this is for double points. <laughs> so there are two words. <laughs> That'll rhyme. Mm-hmm. Diane, you look like you were just having the time <laughs> of your life right now. <laughs> you, thought, you thought the ethical questions were going to be the hard part of this show. <laughs> All right. The perfect show to listen to while going for a walk on a long sidewalk, especially if you like using pretentious synonyms for going for a walk and long sidewalk. It's not just one syllable. Is Esplanade one? Esplanade is one. Esplanade is one. Nice. Now another another word for walk. Promenade. Going for a promenade on the Esplanade cast. (laughs) Oh, what's the Italian word for that? I know the French word for to walk is. Yeah. 
prom- promenade. Okay. So, yeah, <laughs> that was what, what, what? That's the kind of stuff that I'd file away forever. <laughs> yes. If I hear it. Well, you should. I just did. Okay. Deleted it. No. <laughs> well, thank you for playing. All right, we're going to move on it's to when recommendations. You into the <laughs> well, yeah, so you we guys were getting it too easy. Like That's <laughs> why we have to we have to raise the ante a little bit. Well, thank you for being good sports. We'll move on to recommendations. What did you see, watch, read, eat, hear, or even drink this week? We had somebody recommend wine last week, so this is literally a time for you to recommend anything you want to our listeners. It can be a podcast. It can be a film. Be whatever you want it to be. Esto. Okay, <laughs> that's easy. We're gonna recommend Missing something Richardson. we've already we've already talked about. That's true. You are recommending something we talked about. Mm-hmm. You got nothing else, Cara? Nothing horse related? Yeah. No, he said eat. It, it can be. Liter- I'm trying to think of it. what did I do interesting this year. Uh, I mean, this week, so it has to be limited to the... Within no, week. no, it doesn't. It, it's and literally anything. This is the second time you've passed a question <laughs> yeah, off to me, so <laughs> you get to go first. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think of um, a good film. So there's a, a really wonderful but sad film that's going to come to theaters soon called On Her Shoulders. Um, a friend of ours made it, and it was the subject of the film was recently um, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and the director one at Sundance for Best Director and so she's it's a it's a very amazing film it's a film about still telling stories just really sad stories um so it's a hard one to watch but I do recommend it and I saw that the trailer was up so it means it's going to be in actual theaters probably in the next week or two I'm gonna make a future recommendation that's Ooh. fine too million dollar block oh yeah that's when a thing. it comes out yeah, don't ask when it's coming out. It's like asking a pregnant woman if they're having twins. It's like it's just not cool. But um, I yes. didn't say that. I just said when I it comes when. out. It's a, it's a. I gotcha. Yeah, Jasmine, I it'll it'll get done. Mm-hmm. So we're getting there. No doubt. One day. That's the feature. That yeah, it's the feature that Jasmine and I are directing. So we are having a forty-five minute cut theoretically by next week. Um, if I'm still kicking and we can actually get that done. But that's the attempt. So hopefully hopefully finish the edit by end of next summer, maybe. Are you comfortable sharing a brief synopsis on the film? Um, brief synopsis would be that it's about one block of public housing in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Um, Brownsville has the highest concentration of public housing in the country. A lot of people think Chicago. That's not the case. Um, and in addition, this block has what's called like million-dollar blocks. Uh, this neighborhood has million-dollar blocks, which means there are city blocks where the state spends over a million dollars a year incarcerating residents. So this is a neighborhood where there's 17 such blocks. So $17 million a year is going to spending pe- uh, sending people upstate. So our film is essentially just like a portrait of one of these blocks and the people that live within it. Nice. We will look for it, and as we know more about it, we will post it on our... Do you participate? Do you participate in this? Oh, yes, I do. Yes, okay. but we're going to go to Thomas before okay. me. Okay, <laughs> okay. I just, I'm here to learn, so I want to... Uh, Bojack Horseman. <laughs> okay. He recommends this uh, every week. Next, I'm, well, I'm working The first on episode of the new season wasn't great, though. Well, that's the season I'm working on right now. Okay. Is the have second you, one better? Have you seen that episode? It gets better. Okay. I'm on, like, four. I've heard it gets better, just in life, but yeah. Yeah. It introduces a new uh, uh, TV show that he stars in, so it gets more into that, and it's like, which life is he living? But yeah, I recommend that every week, just because I'm watching it. It's so good. Yeah. And I didn't watch much, because my parents were in town for the last 
few days. So I will say Missing Richard Simmons. I re-listened <laughs> to that. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to also put this out there. Somebody needs to write a script about Richard Simmons and cast Pauly Shore. Because I think he has the right sense of Somebody needs to do a podcast on Missing Pauly Shore and yeah. see where he's been. But he could play Richard Simmons so perfectly. He could. I, I don't though. disagree with you there. I'm done. Okay. Um, I have two things to recommend. Uh, one thing I actually brought up on the podcast a few weeks ago was the Jessel, or the Rosenthal and Jesselnick Vanity Project, which was an old podcast um, with comedian Anthony Jesselnick and his friend who works for the NFL Network, which was a pretty irreverent take on the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never thought I really liked Anthony Jesselnick until I listened to that and got a better sense of who he was. So old is and how old? It was three years ago. That got canceled. They mm-hmm. just brought a new version back that is actually mm-hmm. sponsored by Comedy Central rather than the NFL Network, um, and now it's called the Jesselnick and Rosenthal Vanity Project. So mm-hmm. if you want to take football a little less seriously than you probably should, I would recommend that. And the other thing I'll recommend is something I go to every year around this time is Olive Garden's Never Ending Pasta Bowl. Why really? this time? I, it, this is when it is. They do it once yeah. a year. This is where I went after I ran the marathon in Chicago, and I, I don't know if I really like Olive Garden, but I like the idea of eating all the pasta you can eat for ten dollars. Okay. I like the bread. You like that's the bread. Do we do we have a recommendation from the? No, we no, have. Remember you remember your question? <laughs> okay, okay, we'll go out. We'll go out and swing in today. Two short questions. Okay. Um, so far, we have not spent any money out of our own pockets. So we've gotten a number of grants so far. And that will be the subject of her discussion in class tomorrow. Yeah. Nice. Well, I can't wait to hear more. We're and also very cheap. Is, on your project with all women, is that the one that's with Lena Dunham? Um, so not so women so lena dunham is connected to like my podcasting world because that was like the first podcast of pineapple and so there's that connection and they're this weird group of friends from oberlin they're all like buddies essentially have all become very successful and lena dunham is one of them and the founder at my the company i work with a lot pineapple jenna weiss berman was one of them they went to school together and there's this other woman named audrey gelman who's in charge of the wing who's also very influential and so the wing and Audrey is the one responsible for this podcast working with Jenna but they're all like weirdly connected I don't know Lena Dunham is a cute dog she walked on my computer I don't (laughs) (laughs) like a cute dog like there's Lena Dunham's stuff is around the office and creatures but um yeah I thought you were just being super cool and not name dropping no she's her like little puppy like runs around I don't know There's dogs everywhere. No matter where what we explore through conversation or who we meet, we always just end up back talking about dogs. I can't stand it. I don't get it. I know. I know that makes me a terrible person. person. I like I like dogs. Like I'm not. I like kids, but like so. So then you move on. That's like they're little. I mean, I I love dogs, but I think they're. I, I cannot believe the amount of access dogs have in today's world. They're, They're everywhere. everywhere. And, and I love dogs, but, yeah, I, but it, no, they don't my, need to be everywhere. No, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I like cats. I like cats, too. I'm with you. Doesn't surprise but I don't me say it around Peter. Tons. Peter doesn't like that I don't like dogs. I like them. I just don't see like why they need well, to be with you everywhere. Yeah. No, all I like them, no. but they're so needy. It's like, I'm introverted. <laughs> I don't want to... Oh, 
always give you treats and pet you all. I think time. if you had a dog, though, it would adapt to your personality. It, you'd have a pretty introverted it would dog. would be a depressed dog. <laughs> 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 well, Diane, thank you so much for being on this show. I, I know you have much wisdom to impart to students at the DFP tomorrow. Is, is there anything that you learned during your time at the DFP, any wisdom you would just share for our listeners just in general? That's some pressure. Um, with Kara sitting next to me. <laughs> I would say to echo maybe what Kara said at the beginning, I don't know if I was you know, the best at that, but I would say I definitely hustled in my time here, and that was very beneficial. So I, you know, it's like an opportunity cost when you're in grad school. You're choosing to not do something else to be here. So if you're right. going to make that choice, make it worthwhile. Otherwise, like, don't do it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for me, that involved lots of ridiculous jobs, like living in the freshman dorms for three years and all sorts of fun things. But um, it, it worked out, I mm-hmm. would say. Were you a hall director? I was. Me too. Ooh. I was a professional before this professional. Oh, <laughs> a lot of thoughts to share with you. Um, <laughs> but those things were all good. And I would say, too, um, my directing partnership that I still have is from when I was at the DFP and so we are incredibly different humans my Mm -hmm. co-director and I but um, that doesn't that's not a negative um, but it's very much we share a similar artistic vision and that has allowed us to work together now for six years yes it's a long time so yeah we've been doing this for six years and we haven't killed each other yet Um, And I think that's good. And I think it's really finding kind of how to work together. And especially because everyone's going to be different and have different ways of doing things. But us figuring that out in grad school has allowed for us to continue to keep making things and making cool things and and funded things and things we're excited about. And I think that was a huge, a huge benefit. I would say probably we would both agree that was like, no offense to the faculty, but our biggest takeaway from the program was each other in a large sense because we made things we were proud of, we work together still, and we get to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks again for doing it. Um, we look forward to all your future projects and, and wish you continued success. Thank you very much, Trey. Despite the game. Thank you anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. All right. The game wasn't that bad. <laughs> Maybe it was. Don't edit it out, though. Um, Have I ever? <laughs> uh, for Thomas, Diane, and Kara, I am Trey signing off of Deeks and Docs, the official F D F P C. I wish I could kiss your capilla right.